Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. How are you? Hi, Carrie. I am good. I'm good. I'm gearing up to do my last London event for the book tomorrow with Hannah Dawson, who I'm so excited to talk to. Yeah, so I'm really psyched. How about you? I'm good. I am recording in a different location right now. I don't have a mic and there is an intense amount of construction happening um, <laughs> very close to where I am. So I apologize in advance for the lower quality of sound and the higher decibels of construction. Hey, listen, we love a little ambience on this show. It's just a little, <laughs> you know, a little city noise. <laughs> a little bit of city noise. But on to the show. Today, we are thrilled to welcome the American writer, Lori Moore, to the show to talk about her latest novel, I Am Homeless, If This Is Not My Home. Lori is a writer known for her incisive short stories and novels, which are filled with precision, wit, humor, and an idiosyncratic knowingness about the world. I'm Homeless If This Is Not My Home tells the story of Finn, whose brother is dying in a hospice in New York in 2016. His stay is interrupted by the news that his ex-girlfriend Lily, who worked as, what else, a therapy clown, has (laughs) killed herself. This sets off a road trip with her talking corpse. And if that isn't too much, all of this is punctuated by letters from a boarding house proprietor in post-Civil War America about a mysterious lodger that has come to stay. So it's a novel about grief and ghosts and history, but as you can probably tell from that description, it's laced with a lot of really amazing dark humor. So we thought we'd make that the larger theme of our show today. We'll be talking about the kind of dark humor we like, asking whether we think humor can be too dark, and exploring the political uses of dark humor too. But before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Lori Octavia? Sure thing. Laurie Moore is the award-winning author of five story collections, four novels, and a children's book. Her novel, A Gate at the Stairs, was shortlisted for the 2010 Orange Prize, now the Women's Prize. After serving for almost three decades as the Delmore Schwartz Professor in the Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Moore is now the Gertrude Conaway Vanderbilt Professor of English at Vanderbilt University. She lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Also, as a reminder, we are on Patreon. If you want to support the work that we do and get extra content, trust me, you want it. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash lit friction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to wang on about. Our latest Patreon was about being British and American and how that has affected our reading habits. A list of all the books we recommended today is on bookshop.org. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Laurie Moore, a discussion of dark humor in literature, and finally, our usual reading recommendations. So come peer into our dark hearts for the next hour of literary (laughs) friction. I like that. My heart is very dark. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out. Laurie Moore, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. So 
I've asked you to start with a reading from I Am Homeless, if this is not my home. Do you mind setting it up for us? I'm going to be reading from the very beginning part of the more contemporary section of the book. So it's the Finn and Lily part. Finn is arriving in New York to see his dying brother. Korean griddle grease and the smoke from late morning weed in the air, winds light and variable, the sweet stink of sun-warmed trash bags. This was the Indian summer the Algonquins had wanted to be rid of and succeeded, absconding with their jewels and hilarity. The vibrating scotch and scorch of the subway, sulfurous sewage exhaled from the hard, open mouth of the Broadway local, Block after block of brick and concrete buildings, some roaring, some asleep, encaged in geometric jungles of scaffolding. Traffic rumbled like a sea, ambulances practiced their glissandos. Authority was the merchandise as well as the port. Authority in quotation marks was everybody's brand. Vespas sped by seemingly without riders. Finn got the young attendant to retrieve the car from the garage, early from the early bird special. While waiting, he noted a bicycle rickshaw slowing in front of him. Its driver resembled Pete Seeger, replete with a neat wool cap, a flannel shirt, suspenders. But instead of crooning, turn, 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 he was screaming, watch, 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 at the top of his lungs. Watch out for the instructions under the hood. Don't think they're not there. Be afraid of the silver ladies and the pink wires and the shoes, the shoes, the shoes. The white schizophrenics were allowed to ride bikes here. The black schizophrenics huddled under blankets and cardboard on sidewalks against the facades of the skyscrapers. Pieces of paper rolled into jars, trembled with scrawled writing facing outward. I am not homeless. This is my home. Hey, the man running the food cart on the corner of 28th shouted at the Pete Seeger bike bike cabbie. Dude, you need a burrito. Then the bike cabbie drove away. The Chelsea cookware bombs had happened one month before. People were moving on and not. The smell of the city in mourning, the mix of food and smog, triggered in Finn the trips to strange cities he had taken as a child. He had been made to be up too early with his school groups, with his family, and now he could feel again the vague terror and strange adventure of a world happening simultaneously and separately from the world he was from. Cities seemed cobbled together from parts of other cities in other times. These days, people spoke loudly into their own cell phones. He recalled when he had first heard people doing this at the turn of this century, talking loudly in public on phones he couldn't see. He had been in disbelief. It was like everyone had willingly become insane. The disbelief times were now gone, but the insanity had remained. I love that. And I am recording from New York, listening to the sounds of the city. And I feel you've really captured the feeling of what it's like to be in, in New York in particular, but also in a city in, in, oh, in general. And just every sentence has something new. It's really nice to listen to you read that. But 
Could you talk just by telling us about the genesis of this novel? And I wonder, was it always going to be a novel or a, a novella? Yeah, it was going to be a huge novel of about 5,000 pages long. So <laughs> that's always how I begin a novel. It's it's just going to be so just enormous. And then it, it ends up being, you know, a much shorter novel. But yes, it was always going to be a novel. I had these two particular interests, the the... 19th century part that's set in 1870, 71 in there, and then the year 2016. And I was very focused on both of them and sort of driving them as sort of separate narratives, but I knew they had a lot of things in common and kept making them have things in common and kept making them sort of talk to each other across the centuries. And there's even a a boarding house that is in both sections. And that's a bit of a steal from Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, if you know that play, where the the house is has two different dramas going on in it um, from two different centuries. Tom Stoppard said he stole it from some place else so (laughs) the history of stealing that and I just got in line and did it myself as well so yeah these two sections were always meant to be entwined to be sort of vibratingly in conversation sitting next to each other they were not supposed to be sort of solutions to each other or locked in as sort of keys to mysteries or anything but they did have things in common that I wanted to um, put side by side. What was it about that moment in 2016 that appealed to you? 2016 was a very, very strange year, but of course it, it was the election of Trump. It was also the, you know, and so it involves, you know, the Confederacy actually rising up and becoming a force in the presidential election so the presence of the Confederacy there in that election was interesting to me since it really never went away in the South. The other thing is that 2016 was the, it was the hottest year on record. So it's a little bit like a climate change novel where Lily, who is buried, she's buried before a freeze, but then she's thought out because the weather is so unpredictable. And there's lots of unpredictable weather in this novel. And you can sort of see her resurrection, or whatever you want to call it, as a kind of climate change event. There are so many other things that happened in 2016 that I do mention. Um, lots of reversals, in at least in, in the States, where the teams, the, you know, the big sports teams that were supposed to win and were way ahead at the, you know, towards the end of the game suddenly lost. And, and the election, of course, it was like that, where the, the person with the fewest votes won. And even the best film of the year for 2016 was mishandled. It was given, the, the Oscar, the Academy Award, was given to the wrong film, and they had to take it back and give it to the right film. So it was a, it was a very bizarre year. I can see that there's a kind of topsy-turvy feeling that is, you know, it's worrying, but it's also kind of full of possibility. And as you say, that's, 
when Lily, who has killed herself, Finn goes to find her body and, and she emerges talking to him. And I wanted to ask you more about Lily's resurrection, as you called it, and particularly the road trip they take together, because I was, I was thinking as I was reading, the road trip is such a wonderful plot device because it literally keeps things moving. And I wonder if you always wanted to put them in a car together and if you, if the road trip appeals to you for that reason as well. You know, the road trip can be a sort of fallback position for a novelist. And it's, it's not necessarily an admirable one, but there's, (laughs) (laughs) but there's a great tradition of it in American literature. And I was thinking of, as I lay dying, which there's an epigraph from, and that's a road trip too, as are many other famous American novels from on the road to Lolita. There's a lot. So the road trip is part of it. It also sort of puts them in close proximity and forces them into weird conversation, which is always fun and theatrical and a little bit like a play where where you have characters who are confined in a space. And it's really fun to read how they're kind of having fun with each other and I was thinking, as I was reading, I wonder if that's fun for you to write. Do you find that kind of wacky conversation or theatrical conversation in different contexts, do you find it fun to write? Or is it something you want to appear almost fun and funny after the fact, if that makes sense? No, I I do like to get characters talking to each other. I, I have to say, not all of it is intended to be funny for the reader. Some of it is just, it's comedic without being all that funny because there's a lot of failed uh, comedy in these kinds of situations as well. So it's not as if the author is planting jokes in the character's mouths for the entertainment of the reader. This is supposed to be really how characters might speak, or at least how I imagine them speaking. And so it's filled with kind of, you know, not very successful humor, as well as some some successful humor, but some, some failed humor as well. Well, the wider theme of our show this month is dark comedy, which we felt, you know, that arose from from both of our responses to this book, because the comedy that's there is we both felt anyway, you know, it's absurdist sometimes and it's morose sometimes and it's laugh out loud funny sometimes and other times, as you say, it's a f- sort of failed humor within the relationships of these people. And also just the simple fact that Lily worked as a therapy clown, which feels like an excellent dark joke in the context of the story. I Do you think that dark humor is something that you're drawn to? And do you feel like that's an appropriate way to describe some of the humor that's at play in this novel? I'm I'm fine with the term. I never use it. I don't think in terms of dark humor. I do think in terms of the interplay of sadness, tension, pain, suffering, and lightness and kind of consoling amusement. I do think in conversations, people are trying to amuse each other a little bit, sometimes failing, sometimes succeeding. 
and also humor is just sometimes little glitches in the in the mind of the speaker or the character's consciousness where they're releasing a certain kind of tension or going to places you know that they were trying to avoid and that can be funny but that can also be a conversation about pain and suffering as well that also made me think about this quote from the writer Ali Smith that Octavia very kindly brought to my attention, which is, when you have love in the equation, you also have death in the equation. The love story is always about the threat and the promise of loss. And to us, it felt this applied really strongly to this book. You know, it's a, it's a story about love, both brotherly and romantic, um, but it's also about death and dying and loss very, very openly and plainly. And I wonder if you feel that way, that connection between love and death. And, and that was, that seems to be a theme that you're drawn to in your writing. Oh, I, th- I think every writer is drawn to those things. Those are, <laughs> yeah. those are the big, those are the big theme- themes. I think, I think it was Emily Dickinson who said, love and death, what else is there? I think that's <laughs> her. And I'm not sure she had all that much love in her life. And she still said that. Yeah, I do think that love stories all need an obstacle, and that's what makes them a story. And if you don't have any other obstacles, you can always throw in death because death is always there. And, of course, in this love story, Lily's death is the big obstacle, and yet it proves not to be an obstacle for Finn. He's He doesn't let it get in the way. <laughs> No, he's just going to, you know, keep on and actually proposes to her. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be, you know, the perfect lover, sort of. He's he's actually not the perfect lover, but whatever. Yeah, he's a dogged and determined lover, if not perfect. Yeah. But he also, because as you say, his love for Lily is not dampened by the fact of her dying. It means that you you're given this opportunity to describe Lily's corpse from the perspective of a lover. And the way Finn sees her is so tender and so beautiful, even as she is decomposing, as you sort of mentioned earlier on, because it's the heat and everything. At one point, he describes her as sheer as the rice wrap on a spring roll, which is such a delightful way to describe a body. (laughs) And I wondered, like, how did you come to imagine the lovely ways in which a corpse might degrade rather than the kind of horrifying ways? Well, you know, a writer walks around with their book in their head all the time. And so I was probably looking at a spring roll. <laughs> and probably, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what the character would look like and, and put it in. I mean, it does, it does ruin spring rolls for, the, for a while. <laughs> You probably don't want to eat one after that. But I just imagined a body fading, changing colors, the way the way dying people start to change. I just kept going with that and and tried to make it sensual since it's all being viewed from Finn's point of view and he's in love with her and very accepting of her. Yeah, that's the the thing I found so beautiful about their relationship that, as you say, he's not a perfect lover and it's an 
imperfect relationship as all relationships are, and it's full of misconnections and misunderstandings as all relationships are, but his acceptance of her is so complete. It's very beautiful, I thought. Yes. He's also very angry with her. Mm. And and he has to finally get to his anger. I mean, there's little moments where he's a little touchy with her. And then he, at the end, he kind of, you know, he's in desperation. He just kind of yells at her. But he does love her. I mean, so anger is also part of love. Yeah, it is. And, and also part of his character in a wider sense. I mean, he's a teacher, but he is this quite rebellious character within that context. He's determined to teach his students a counter history. And when we meet him, he's maybe about to lose his job as a result of this. And he teaches them maths, even though he's not te- meant to be teaching them maths. And he's quite frustrated with the world around him. And his perspective offers you the chance to, through his eyes, critique contemporary American culture. And I wonder if you had if you had any thoughts you wanted to share on that. Was that something you went into the character thinking about, or was that something that emerged in the writing of him? No, that I, I definitely wanted that because it connects two things. It connects the. I mean, he is always Finn is always looking past the official narrative of things, and that's the way he teaches, and that's what gets him in trouble on his job. But it also connects the 19th century part, looking past the the official narrative, what officially happened um, with the conspirators against Lincoln. And it just reflects Finn's relationship with Lily as well. He's looking past the official narrative of Lily. The official narrative of Lily is that she died. He doesn't accept it. The official narrative of Lily is that she's moved on to this other guy. And he doesn't really accept that either. I like that. And how you talk about how you're seeding bits from the other narrative into kind of the way he looks at the world. And one of the things I really noticed about this novel was all of the, you talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but all of the correspondences between the two narratives, like almost as if I would have to read the book three or four times (laughs) to pick up on all of them. (laughs) Um, And uh, I, I wonder, like, I wonder if you could just talk about how you found that structure and those correspondences, how they came together. And also, you know, was there any research that went into some of those things, especially when it came to the historical narrative? You know, I did do research on the historical part because I was very interested in all the rumors about John Wilkes Booth. And and I was interested in what a 19th century boarding house might be like. And I read letters and diaries from the 19th century. The correspondences, the little doublings, the the two Jacks, the, the siblings both dealing with the death of, you know, the death of one sibling, that was all deliberate from the, from the beginning. Was it hard to keep track of when you were structuring the book with like all of these things? No. I mean, the structure, you know, the thing about the structure of any novel is that the novelist is inventing it. A novel doesn't really have a structure unless you are just writing a commercial or genre novel, and then there are conventions that you have to follow. But if you're writing a literary novel, the novel has no 
organic form. It doesn't even have as much form as a short story, which at least has length constraints. You know, you can't have the novel or you can't have a short story that goes past page 50, say. But you can have a novel that is 100 pages long or a million pages long. It doesn't, it's not confined. And there's, there are no rules. Now, if you want a, a novel that's set up and constructed in perfect chapters, you can look at Dickens, who wrote perfect chapters. You can look at Austin, who wrote perfect chapters. But in general, you know, whether you look at Joyce or whether you look at Faulkner, they're, they're just making this structure up. And that's what I did. That's what I did. I just made it up. How do you know, you said at the beginning that, you know, lots of your novels start out with an idea of being 5,000 pages long and, and then they end up shorter. How well, do you know when you've kind of found your, your structure, when you've felt your way through it? Well, you don't know really until you find yourself getting to the end where the the energies have been exhausted, the characters have arrived to the place that you knew they had to arrive to, and then you may have some things to add. I did feel in this book that I had about three different endings, but I mean, other people probably wouldn't sense that, but they're all in there. I think when you begin a novel, it's just what you're embarking on seems so huge and so difficult that you just assume it's going to take millions of pages. And <laughs> I, I just don't write that way, I guess. I just, there's just compression creeps in. I know Alice Munro supposedly began so many of her short stories as novels. And then she got to page 50 and she was done. And But that's why her, her short stories are so unusual and have that compressed novelistic aspect to them. Right. Yeah, they have a sense of expansiveness even within that compression. Right. There's this moment when Lily Finn are together in the car and they have a back and forth about what kind of movie this moment that they're having is. And they ask, is it a zombie movie? Is it a rom-com? Perhaps it's documentary, a sweet documentary with a bit of thriller in it. And I couldn't help but wonder how you thought about your own story and how you relate to genre in particular, because I was so interested when you, when you said you saw this as an environmental novel, which of course it is, but I hadn't even thought about that, mainly because there are so many other things within it. Right. I think people in life often wonder what genre they're in. You know, is this a horror story? Is this a comedy? Are are we in a tragedy? What is this? And of course, this book is just like life. It's a it's a mix of you know genres and their and components of genres. So. I I both wanted the characters to sort of speak as as characters might in in confusion about what's happening to them like what what is this what where are we what is the, what are we you know what is this narrative we're in right now because it's so weird what's happening to them and they recognize that but it also has a bit of metafiction in it 
It's also a strange phenomenon that you can experience something as a comedy in the moment, and then when you reflect on it later, realize it was a tragedy, actually. Right. You don't know. You don't know yeah. until you get the perspective later on, right? Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you about the epigraphs. You mentioned that there's one from Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. There's also one from Stephen Foster's Oh, Susanna, and then a very funny line from Sheila Hattie's How Should a Person Be?, can you talk about why you chose those three as the as the sort of opening frame for the novel? You know, I had it an an additional one. I had one from Emerson, but I took it out. And uh it was a, a quote from an essay where he said, uh, the only thing that grief has taught me is how shallow it is. But I just thought that was subject to so much misinterpretation, and then I just and I thought you can't have four epigraphs. That's just <laughs> but the O oh, Susanna. I mean, Susanna is the same name as Lily. I discovered it it because it comes from the Hebrew Shoshana, which means Lily. So Susanna and Lily are considered the same names, really. And the buckwheat cake in the song is widely thought to be a symbol of death, that wow. the, song, the song is written about someone who's died, that they put buckwheat cake in the, in the mouth of the corpse. And then I wanted the, the, the As I Lay Dying um, epigraph because I wanted some flat-footed, heavy-handed reference to the <laughs> And the Sheila Hattie quote just cracked me up, and I thought, this is so perfect. I hope she doesn't mind if I use this. I, I love this idea of being heavy-handed. You know, I think <laughs> some other novelists would never even suggest that in jest. But, of course, I kind of love when novels are heavy-handed sometimes. I, I want them to be giving me signs and symbols and sort of suggesting things, even if that's misdirection. I don't know. And I was I was thinking about that in the context of American history in this novel too, and John Wilkes Booth, who you mentioned, who who killed Lincoln. That's this like, it's this kind of enduring myth in American history. And I was just thinking about this novel's relationship with American history in in the context of American novelists' relationship with American history, which is like I do think we as a culture are kind of obsessed with writing our own history over and over and over. And it's a big component of the way that American novelists think about their fiction. And obviously I know you're not, in in all of your books, you're not just constantly writing about big moments from American history, but I wonder, you know, how do you, how do you feel about this book and about your writing in relation to that larger history of, of writing history? I think a lot of American history has been written quickly and erroneously, and I think most historians would agree. There are many things about Booth's assassination of Lincoln that have been repeated um, and are wrong. Um, the research you know, I did at the New York Public Library included a memoir from the curtain puller at the Ford Theater. In the, he was 14 years old when and he was there at the theater, and he had a lot of things to say that historians haven't really included. The whole, you know, now I'm getting rather specific and going down this rabbit hole, but, you know, the whole thing of 
Booth saying, thus be to all tyrants in Latin, shouting that out, you know, from the Julius Caesar, his role in Julius Caesar. And that never happened. But biographers continue to repeat that. And so it does seem like the conspiracy against Lincoln was quite wide. I mean, we know we know it was, you know, a bunch of people, that it wasn't just John Wilkes Booth. There were four people hanged for it, but there were men, and then there were maybe a few others who were imprisoned, but it probably was even wider than we knew. But the country had to move on, you know, and, and so they quickly did. But even to this day, the official versions of things are still repeated as opposed to interrogated. And so I think, you know, we have to have an interrogation of, of, all history, all versions of history. There's not just one version. But I, w- I was interested in this and interested in combining it with a history teacher who so believes in questioning official narratives that he questions the death of his own girlfriend. Laurie Moore, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction today. It's been a delight to have you. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. It's been fun. I'm back here with Octavia to talk about our theme today. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, in honor of Lori Moore's I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home, which features a literal talking corpse of a woman who worked as a therapy clown, we wanted to talk more generally about dark humor. There's something deeply attractive about dark humor, isn't there? I think it has something to do with the taboo of it all, making light of things that society tells us should be taken deeply seriously like death. Um, But of course, we all know that even the darkest moments of life contain humor, and I think dark humor really gets at that. So first, I wanted to start by asking you about your relationship with dark humor, Octavia. Is it something that you like, and do you seek it out? Yes, I love it. I love it. I think it is so precious as a psychological tool for navigating really difficult things, both in literature and in life generally. I mean, I am a laugher at funerals. I can't help it. Um, But also I think because, you know, in my lived experience, some of the darkest things I've been through have also had this really deep humor embedded in them. And that's partly to do with the fact that they are of an order of magnitude that is out of the ordinary and needs help kind of to be processed and humor can offer that. So I think, you know, sometimes the best way to cope with something like a near-death experience or the gradual loss of someone you love is by finding the humor in it. It's that that classic phrase, if you don't laugh, you'll cry kind of thing. Sometimes humor can be a really helpful shield, but also sometimes it can be a catharsis. It can be a way of getting in, in there to the difficult feelings and making them tolerable. Um, not by lightening them up necessarily, but it's more, it gives you this release, you know? Like I think death is the perfect subject for dark humor because... Sometimes 
it's kind of the only way we can really approach it psychologically. You know, death is something that can easily be too heavy or too frightening or just too relentless an idea to take seriously all the time. And I think recognizing really the utter absurdity of it, like, think about it, this life that we're given, that is our total reality, that is something we can't really imagine beyond. And then it's also temporary. (laughs) Like, are you kidding? That's hilarious to me. You know, it's very, very (laughs) funny. So I think humor offers us a great way of coping without just retreating into denial. And denial doesn't help us out ultimately. It's much more dangerous. So that's why I am so interested in it as a tool and why I think it's worth exploring. The thing I don't like, however, is dark humor that punches down. And like you mentioned, like it can be about the taboo, which is fantastic, but I'm really not interested in humor that's just edgy because it's breaking a social taboo by simply being racist or sexist or, you know, ableist or anything like that. Like that's not humor I find psychologically interesting or useful. And I see it more as just a window into some of the most disappointing traits of human beings, like our tendency I don't know, towards prejudice and bigotry rather than being psychologically useful or like revealing of a deeper truth. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And actually like comedy can be this veil of excuse that people use when they want to say something sexist or racist. They're like, oh, it's all a joke. You know, I'm just being darkly humorous. Um, When, when actually, as you say, that's not, that's not really what the best dark comedy is. It's not kicking somebody while they're down. Yeah. But for me, quite honestly, dark humor has never been something that I've gravitated towards. And as you spoke, I was like, yes, you're right. Like, that's so true. Everything you're saying resonates with me. But then when I actually go to read the dark humor or to see the dark humor, it's just not something I've ever loved. And I was trying to think about why, because I I don't necessarily mind darkness in books. You know, I will often pick out stories that deal with things like death or, you know, suicide, depression, war. And yet if something is described as a black comedy, I just like steer clear of it. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that it's really hard to do dark comedy well. Yes. It's really hard to write comedy. It's even harder to write good dark comedy. And for me, so much of it falls flat. And it's it's either because of exactly what you said about it punching down. Sometimes I think it's there just for shock value rather than being genuinely funny. And I don't, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in being shocked um, or just shocked rather. And black humor can be so macho sometimes. You know, it's so interesting to to research this a bit on the internet and the lists of of kind of dark humor authors, so many of the names that you see come up are men. And, you know, I, I'm thinking of like Chuck Palahniuk and people like that. I think those are sort of traditionally regarded as black humorists, but it's to me, that's just like, they're saying taboo things just to make me feel uncomfortable. It just doesn't do much for me. But yeah, I don't know. I, I also think that sometimes when something is operating as dark comedy, it's it's on a register that's not necessarily delving deep into emotions, which is something I seek out in books. Although as you were describing it, I was thinking actually it's an incredibly emotional genre if done right. But finally, if I'm really honest with myself, I think I'm a bit of a wuss. <laughs> and I'm also a Pollyanna. 
And the <laughs> darkest comedies sometimes do kind of shock me and make me uncomfortable. And I, like sometimes they offend me and I just don't love them. And I, I, I'll come out and say it, you know, I'm boring. But then to add insult to injury, I found an article online about a scientific study that proved that people who appreciate dark humor are smarter in that they have higher IQs and they're sort of more relaxed and have better lives. So <laughs> the joke's on me and you are a more highly evolved being than I am. Apparently. Oh my God. I always knew it. No, I think <laughs> I'm just more traumatized, honestly, let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I want to get deeper into this. Because what what is good dark humor to you? What, you know, beyond these ideas of catharsis or getting at death, what do you think really good dark humor does well? I think it's moving. I, and that is what catharsis is. Catharsis is a movement, an emotional movement. It's about release. And the idea is that in a catharsis, you get some relief from emotions that are either really, really powerful, too powerful to hold in mind all the time, or crucially, emotions that are repressed. So catharsis is something that allows you to approach the repressed and have a momentary release from it. Like it's a very powerful psychological experience. And for me, dark humor, like the best dark humor does that. So it's really nothing to do with shock value. It's actually about detonating something in the emotional realm. Um, And so it's much richer and more complex than a more simple kind of humor because it actually reaches deep into a fear or a threat or something that's like very hard to face unless you can unravel it slightly with the humor. And if you think about it, even just physically, right? Like laughter, like a genuine belly laugh is a physical release and an emotional release, right? It's like when we, when, when the body and the mind and the spirit will come together in a moment of real uh, expression, like congruent expression, And so I think when dark humor is really working for me, it gives me an intense release. And actually sometimes really dark humor, like I'll laugh and then I'll cry a little bit because of the catharsis, because of the release. And and honestly, I think that's what stops it from just being macho and just being about shock tactics. And maybe, you know, if we want to think about it sort of in a more theoretical way, maybe that's what queers it from the macho realm. Um, And so I'm thinking of of a writer like Melissa Broder. I think she's so good at this in general, but I'm thinking particularly of the Pisces where she imbues humor with actually these very deep emotions. It makes you laugh, but it also makes you feel and it also makes you think and reflect. Um, And, you know, Nell Zink is also great at dark humor, but I think hers is less the cathartic kind and it's more arch and at a distance, maybe more intellectually, um, engaged and less emotionally visceral. And for me, the the best dark humor is emotionally visceral. Interesting. What about you? Well, I think the best dark humor for me lays bare the absurdities of life. You know, I think I love dark humor that makes me think, oh yeah, that is ridiculous that we do it that way. (laughs) Or like, it is ridiculous that we just don't talk about these things or don't talk about the experience of grief or you know, pretend it's all okay when actually it's really not. Yeah. So what I'm thinking of here is uh, novels like Catch-22 by Joseph Heller, which is set in the Second World War. And for those who haven't read it, the title refers to this dilemma faced by combat pilots where the pilots can cease to fly missions on the grounds of insanity, 
but by asking to stop flying, they're demonstrating their sanity because it would be insane to want to be a combat pilot in the first place. And of course, you know, it's like, it's that's so dark. It's making this joke of war, but that is kind of the perfect encapsulation of the utter absurdity of the whole endeavor, you know, like that people are just killing other people in war. Mm. And I think in some ways that that makes the point about the absurdity of war so much more than something that is just, you know, this really, you know, like Saving Private Ryan, where you're just forced to watch the D-Day landings. like Right, which is just melodrama, basically, right? Yeah, or it's spectacle. And you're not, you're not kind of confronted with the reality. Sometimes you, you, you have to have a distance. And the humor, in some ways, gets you even closer, even if it's operating on the realm of satire, even if it isn't realism, quote unquote. Yeah. So I think that's the kind of dark humor I like. So on that note, do you like dark humor when it's used for like a explicitly political? And do you think that it's an effective way to make a point? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I think it's, it's kind of a way of pricking the human ego, isn't it? It's like, look at all these silly little systems we've created to try and contain like the awful, terrifying truth of our mortality, you know, yeah. it's like marriage, yeah. like <laughs> politics, like systems of ruling. Like it's just, you know, I'm, I am thinking kind of, I guess, of, of novels like Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho, which, you know, it's a book I do not have straightforward feelings about, but it really is an extraordinary piece of writing in that it it pushes its central allegory right to the absolute limit. And I think that people get very caught up in the gore and the shock value side of that novel, which I'm not going to argue isn't there. There is a shock value element to it. But I think people really forget that it's a black comedy. It's a funny book, as well as being a horrifying book. And, and the, the core kind of central principle of the comedy in it is about the violence of unchecked greed and the violence of the ruthless pursuit of capital. And it is a very political book in that for that reason. Yeah, it's so interesting because there are so many different ways that I think that novel is read. Totally. It makes me think about what the author is trying to do versus what like some finance bros have picked up in American Psycho. Oh my God, I know. But what about you? What about political points for dark humor? How do you feel about it? Yeah, I feel good. And I think I feel good. (laughs) I feel good about it. I love it. (laughs) Um, And when I was thinking about that, all all my favorite examples of dark humor have some kind of political point that they're making or in the the realm of political satire. So Catch-22, which I just mentioned, but also a lot of films that I really, really love, I think are politically motivated dark humor. So Parasite. Um, oh, the film yes. by Bong Joon-ho. I mean, that's a that's a dark, dark, dark comedy that is saying really profound things about inequality and kind of the in in the same way that you described American Psycho is is taking the rea- like pushes the allegory to the limit, and that's so exciting. At the same time, I don't think that dark humor has to be political to be good. And I'm thinking of another film here, The Banshees of Inisherin which I watched recently and I thought was amazing. And again, very dark and also very funny, but that's, it's not, it's not really political, although there are themes about Ireland definitely threaded into it, but I think it's, it's more of a reflection on, on friendship and what we choose to do with our lives. And, and again, taking the allegory to, to a new place and kind of poking at it and exploring it and really thinking through what we do with our lives and why. Mm. So 
Let's talk about our favorite books about our theme of dark humor. What is yours, Octavia? I'm going to recommend Hot Milk by Deborah Levy, which is like definitely not ever billed as a comedy, but it's a novel that like all of Levy's work feels designed to speak some way directly to the unconscious. And Freud thought humor was a brilliant way to do that. And I think Levy's work, you know, I'm not saying she's a Freudian, but like that's the level on which a lot of her work is operating. And this novel, I think, is such a brilliant example of how you can use wordplay and wit and humor and surrealism to dig deep, deep into complex themes. Like the theme of this book is like enmeshed relationships between mothers and daughters and like sexuality and the struggle of emotional autonomy. And she uses the writing the kind of the cleverness of the dark humor is all in the writing, very much in the writing, more than it's even in the plot. I mean, literally in her word choices and things like that. And I think it's fascinating. Somebody was reading that next to me on the plane. And I said to her, I love that novel. And she said, great. And then she went back to <laughs> reading the novel. It was like a, the best possible plane interaction. Oh my God. You should have been like, and do you know who I am? I actually present a literary podcast and my opinion is uh, kind of important. <laughs> <laughs> I would never do that, Octavia. Never, um, never, never. Yeah. I don't think of it as that as a dark comedy, but you're right, it totally is. Um, yeah, I think that's super dark. Show. What's yours? Well, another book that we talk about a lot on the show, but I, I just wanted to shout out my year of rest and relaxation. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, what I wanted to particularly mention about this is that it's very dark humor about a woman written by a woman. And I said, you know, so many of the examples that you see are are very are written by men about men, very macho. But women can be disgusting and depraved too. And Otessa Mushfeg understands that better than most. And I think that's very important. All right, we are back here with Laurie Moore to give our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start with yours? I would love to. Um, this is a book that I have been shouting about. Um, at all. I've just been on my book tour and I've been shouting about it at all the events. And I, so much so that I thought I'd already recommended it on the show <laughs> because I feel like I've, I've said this a lot, but I just loved it. It's called Open Throat by Henry Hoke, um, who's an American novelist. And this book, it beguiled me so much. I basically read it almost in one gulp. The only reason I didn't is because I had to go to sleep in between the evening when I started it and the morning when I finished it. Um, but it's one of those books that just kind of grabs you and then you don't want to be separate from it. So it's a very, um, it's it, the premise is, I'm going to keep it tight because I don't want to give too much away, but basically it's narrated by a queer mountain lion who's dangerously hungry and living or in fact, probably more accurate to say, trying to survive in the Hollywood Hills outside of Los Angeles. Um, and I really think the best way to enjoy this book is to do as I did, which is go in without any context really, and just let the the voice of this mountain lion carry you through. But I will say that Hoke has created 
such a memorable character. I mean, I'm still thinking about this mountain lion weeks after I finished reading the book. And, um, and I just fell for, I fell for the voice. I fell for the style and I fell for the story that the, the lion is telling. And it left me thinking about how writers can use the animal perspective when it's done well. And I think Hoke achieves this, you know, it, it, it can be a really brilliant way of revealing things about humanity and the human world without being too on the nose about it. Um, but also in this book, this mountain lion is like the, the vehicle through which you can explore longing and loneliness and desire and really the effects on any living soul of, of living in precarity, um, whether that's the precarity brought about by climate change or by simply scarcity of resources. And I think also the other thing I want to say is that the writing is very stylized. It's it's not a poem, but it's almost told in couplets um, and it's quite short and it's very distilled, the style. So actually, Laurie, it, it's a very different way of writing to yours, but there's something comparable in that there is this kind of metaphors and similes that are very, very exact and original. So you, you as a reader, your, your mind is kind of filled with new ways of looking at things or thinking of things. So for example, the lion refers to these massive LA highways because it doesn't know the word for road as the long death, which I just, I can't oh. stop thinking about. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. That sounds really wonderful. It sounds beautiful, like a like an environmental novel, really. Yes, yeah, yeah, very much. I think you would enjoy it immensely. Laurie, could we have your recommendation? I'm reading, I haven't finished it, uh, Jenny Urbanbeck's Kairos, and I would really recommend that. I, I spent four months in Germany from January to May, this past May, and I, I started to realize that the, the real conversation in Berlin is about East and West and the reunification and, and the continuing difficulties and a combination of sort of nostalgia and, and um, anger and a sense of betrayal between the East and the West in Berlin and in Germany overall. And, and Jenny Erpenbeck's novel is a love story about two people who are are in East Berlin and um, it the you know the focus is a little bit the focus is on both of them and 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 she does things I always tell my students not to do like she has two points of view in a single paragraph <laughs> she doesn't use quotation marks it all works in her book doesn't work when my students do it so I tell them not to do it <laughs> <laughs> but it is about a different philosophy. I mean, both of these characters, I mean, they're in love with each other. They both have different ideas about the East and different allegiances to that utopian experiment that was East Germany. I mean, I haven't gotten to the end, so, and I also don't want to spoil it for myself or for anyone else, but so it it's about the, the these two people an older an older man and a younger woman um falling in love and negotiating a lot of different opinions about where they live and and it's, it takes place just before the wall came down it takes place in the 80s wonderful i really want to read that sounds great so my recommendation is the Forbidden Notebook by Alba de Cespedes, 
which was translated by Anne Goldstein from Italian. I really would recommend this book, which was written in the 50s in a series of installments, but was recently republished by Pushkin Press in the UK. And I think it came out in the US as well recently, though I can't remember the publisher. So the premise of this book is that it's the diary of a housewife in post-war Italy who really has sacrificed everything for her family, so much so that when she suggests the idea of even keeping a diary, they all laugh because they can't imagine her having thoughts that she would need to write down and keep privately for herself. And also, she doesn't even have anywhere to keep a notebook. And yet she begins to to keep a secret notebook. It feels almost like a compulsion to her. And she has to keep hiding it in different places around the house um, where the family might find it. And, you know, they open the drawer and she has to like throw some napkins on top of it so that they don't see it. So there's this kind of meta narrative of about even keeping their own notebook at all and what it means for her to finally be exploring her internal desires beyond the needs and wants of her family. And and it's also just this wonderfully kind of interior drama. And and the author has such a gift for making the smallest things like the the daughter's affair with an older lawyer or um her her husband's attempt to sell a this film script, just totally monumental. And the kind of little shifts that occur in our relationships with other people. And Anne Goldstein is is the translator of Elena Ferrante as well. And it's really interesting to read this because you see that Cespedes was probably a huge influence on Ferrante. I mean, in terms of its psychological examination of the lives of women, um, the time period, the kind of incisive prose. If you like Elena Ferrante, I think you'll like this. And it's very much its own thing, not least because it came before Elena Ferrante um, and is actually written during the time that Elena Ferrante is writing historically into. But I think it just stands alone as well. It's a, it's, it's a really, really wonderful novel. Brilliant. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Lori Moore and to Daphne Carnesis and George Muiris for editing. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us by email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and it helps us reach new listeners, which we love to do. We really do. We'll be back soon with another mini-sode. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is literary friction.